0: 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us wisdom, literature, and, and God, I just pray that you would your spirit would open up our hearts this morning, that we would be receptive to your word, that you would have your word uh, brought to our hearts this morning, and that we would be a people that uh, don't traffic in foolishness, but that we are receptive to your wisdom that you have for us. We want to be wise people. So I pray as we explore this series in Ecclesiastes, this, this text of wisdom literature, that uh, we would be people that hearken to your wisdom, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, if the text is familiar with you today, a time for this, a time for that, and you had a little tune play in your head, uh, you're probably not a millennial, right? You're, uh, right? Uh, it, because in 1965, there was a little tune by the birds that was released called Turn, 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 uh, subtitled to everything that there is a season. Uh, and, and so when you, when you hear that text, it might, you know, that little jangle uh, might be in your head. Uh, because this is perhaps the most quoted and best-known portion of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's beautiful poetry. It's thought-provoking. And in this bit of poetry, in the, from, right from the beginning, we see something that, especially as Ohioans, we can all agree to. And that is this idea of changing seasons and changing time, right? Uh, in, in the state of Ohio, you can experience all four seasons in one week. Today, it's 90 degrees tomorrow it's going to rain, the day after that it's probably going to snow. I mean, welcome to Ohio, right? So you have to accept, if you're going to be in Ohio, you have to accept this reality that, uh, of the changing times, the changing seasons. And the preacher here, the author of Ecclesiastes, wants you to ask this implied rhetorical question as you're going through all of these times and seasons. And the implied rhetorical question is this, what can you do about changing seasons or time itself? All of these times, for a time for this and a time for that, what can you ultimately do to stop it, to start it, to, uh, to speed it up, to slow it down? What can you do to change the seasons and time? And the answer is, of course, Nothing. You can't do anything about it. You can't control the changing seasons. You have no control over time. A time to be born and a time to die. You had no say as to when and to whom and to where you were born. That was completely out of your control. Right? That just happened to you. Part of your humanity is just accepting that reality. You can't control that any more than you can control the weather or the seasons, or time. And even though we might try to be healthy and fit and and eat vegetables and stay away from from sugars and things like that and and live this long and healthy life, none of us ultimately get the choice of opting out of death. Right? It's not left to us. You are inside of time and you cannot escape it. And in verse 4, We see it says that there's a time to laugh and dance, a time to weep and mourn. And as much as we try to make our lives about times where we uh, have laughter and parties and joy and, and good things happening, there are times that come that are out of our control that bring with it sadness and sorrow and mourning. In the same way that life dispenses moments of happiness Life dispenses moments of pain. And the point of the author here and talking about all of these things is to show us that in life, in time, you aren't sovereign. You aren't in control. We are not in control. And even though we may think that we are in control and have a say in what happens, we actually do these little things that subtly undermine this, this false perception that we have of control. For example, how many in here consider themselves to be a good driver? Good drivers? Is there some good drivers in here? Okay, there's a few. Some of you, a lot of you are honest. You're like, oh, I'm not a good driver, right? And, and some of you are really bold. I'm a good driver. Okay, so you're a good driver. Now, if you're such a great driver, then why do you wear a seatbelt? Why do you wear a seatbelt if you're such a great driver? Now, you may say, well, because it's the law. Okay, okay. But, but also because you can't control for the cra- other crazy people on the road. Right? You might be the best driver in the world, and you should still probably wear a seatbelt because you can't control for the other crazy people on the road. You actually have very little control over the risks of driving. And so you wear a seatbelt because you know I'm a good driver, but ultimately I'm not in control. What about insurance, right? We have insurance. We have uh, car insurance. We have life insurance. We have health insurance, home insurance. Why do we have insurance? Because even if I'm, again, a good driver, or even if, even if I'm young or I'm in good health and uh, in a place where there's relatively not a whole lot that, that may happen, something could still happen. Something still could happen that hurts me or hurts my possessions, And insurance is basically admitting that you're not in control and that you're hedging against it, against that lack of control that you have in your life. So we like to think that we are in control, but we do these subtle things that are essentially admissions that we aren't in control. And this idea of not being in control is unsettling to us. We're, kind of, we're Americans. We value our autonomy. This idea of not being in control of our own destiny, it, it causes and creates anxiety and stress inside of us. This is why, honestly, I, 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 I kind of find it humorous a little bit, but watching elections play out on either side of the aisle, whether you're left or whether you're right, it's really interesting. Whenever, uh, whenever a candidate loses, the other side freaks out. Always. It doesn't matter which side it is. The other side's always gonna kind of like have these freak out moments. Why? Because they're just filled with the, the, this anxiety, this, this sense of not being control is suddenly, they're confronted with that and it doesn't sit well with us. So we lose our minds when we have a lack of control or maybe, maybe that's a big example, but in my house, uh, it, our, our sense of control even goes down to things like the remote control of the TV, right? Any of you like obsessive about having control of the remote in my house, uh, the remote controls tend to disappear. Like people find them and like hide them from everybody else, so that the remote is mine. It's my precious, right? I have, I have control. I have the sense of control, and there's anxiety, you know. And I'll walk into the living room and ask my kids, "Where's the remote?" And everybody gets quiet. Nobody has any clue. All right, where's the remote? All right, well, nobody's getting dessert. All right, well, it's over here and here's... Right? So this sense of control causes anxiety. We want to try to have this sense of control, even though deep down inside uh, this text is showing us we have absolute control over nothing. In verse 11, the preacher says, Also he, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, there's this sense in which we realize we were made to live forever. Eternity is in our heart, and yet God has still put limitations on us. We are in the scope of time. Eternity, there's a kind of infiniteness that's in our hearts, and yet it's, it's, we're barred from it. We're limited still in the scope of time. Time has limited us. The ways and reasons of God can still be mysterious to us. So this is a wisdom that's given to us that's hard for us to accept, that you don't have absolute control over anything because you're inside of time. And the implications are that you have human limitations. Part of your humanity is being limited. Now, we can play the part of the fool and and reject or deny that our humanity and these limitations, which is what we often try to do. We try to live in a kind of denial of our limitations in humanity, and we burn out ourselves with our expectations on us. We burn out others with expectations on them. We create relational tension with each other. Our lives become this uh, overextended, overcommitted, overworked attempts at shedding our humanity and it only leads to foolish and painful ends. Or we can traffic in wisdom and accept the reality that we aren't in control, that God is. And how does this, if we accept this reality then, okay, I'm not in control. God is in control. Um, I have ultimately no control over anything. How does this translate to wisdom for us? Well, the text gives it to us in two ways. The preacher says he has these perceptions. In verse 12, he says, I perceived that. And in verse 14, he says, I perceived that. So in other words, in light of the fact that we are not in control, that we have these limitations set on us, and that God is sovereign and he is in control, here are two perceptions. Here are two realities for us. In verse 12, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, this is God's gift to man. So if you're not in control, if you're not guaranteed another breath, another heartbeat, another meal, or another day at work, then every breath, every heartbeat, every day at work is a gift. And we talked about this last week. And and this is the tension that we're going to have to kind of, as we go through this series, realize that... The preacher in Ecclesiastes often starts out here, and then moves on here, and then moves on here, and then jumps back, and then moves forward again, and then jumps back, and it's, it's all circular, and, and, uh, and it's, it's not linear, right? And so, uh, so we'll be trafficking a little bit in what we talked about last week, but we'll put some, some added twist on it. But every day you have with your spouse or friends, as we talked about last week, it's a gift, Every day you have with your kids, your family, it's a gift. Every day you spend making money at your job so you can buy the things that you need, the things that you want, it's a gift. Every time you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or every time you have a steak with a glass of wine, right, it's a gift. It's a gift. If you aren't in control, if you are not in control and you aren't, then all of these things are gifts, is what he says. But the alternative alternative is this, if you are in control, if you are the master of your own destiny, then nothing is really a gift, right? It's all earned. If you're in control, then it's not a gift, it's earned, you're entitled to it. And here's the thing about being entitled, when you are entitled, you suck the joy out of everything. Entitled people aren't happy, they're miserable, right? Anybody ever go to the supermarket to the to the grocery store and you see an entitled kid, right? None of our kids, right? Our kids are perfect. Like our kids don't act this way. It's, it's everybody else's kids, right? You go you go to the grocery store, you go to a store and you've seen you've seen it, right? This entitled kid that wants this candy or wants this toy and wants this and they feel entitled like they own it and they're throwing a fit. And everybody's super happy, right? No. Right? They're miserable. Like, entitlement has a way of, of uh, making you miserable, not making you happier. When you feel entitled to something, you're miserable. And the reason why we are often, I think, miserable is because we actually have this perception that I'm in control, and because I'm in control, therefore I'm entitled. I deserve it. And the irony of it, really, is that if we were to get the very things that, that we pout and fuss about, they ultimately would not fill us or fulfill us. But, thanks be to God, you aren't in control, and you shouldn't be. And the sooner that we accept that, the sooner that we begin to see the gifts that we have. Let me put it this way. It's, it's really ultimately about priorities. The gift nature, it's, it's about having the right priorities. And when you're a pastor, you become aware on a macro scale Of uh, the extent of suffering and tragedy that goes on in a church, like so, if you're, you know, you're you're in your own little bubble and community group in your own life, and that's that's great, and and even you might be aware of tragedy and suffering that's going on in your life or in the life of others. But when you're a pastor, you're trafficking in this macro scale suffering. This this you see all of this suffering that goes on. In in the past like ten years here as a pastor. I've seen all kinds of suffering, all kinds of suffering. People having friends and family pass away or become ill, job loss and layoffs, tragedy, all kinds of hardships. And what's interesting to me is when I have conversations with people that are in the middle of suffering or in the middle of hardships, the things that they say. I think that people in in the midst of suffering... Are able to have a clear, and they'll say things what actually matters, about what actually matters in life. And they'll say things like, never take another day with your loved ones for granted. In other words, don't, what they're saying is, don't have a sense of entitlement. You don't know when it's a time for death or a time for mourning. And believe me, those times are coming for all of us. If you knew that in a month from now that a loved one or you personally were going to be passed, we're we're going to die, perish. If you knew that in a month from now that was going to happen, what would happen in your life right now? Well, probably you would grieve, right? You would grieve a little or a lot. And then you know what you would do? On one hand, most of the stuff that causes you tremendous anxiety right now, would be exposed for the fluff that it is, for the hot air that it is. Most of the things, if you knew that in a month from now that you were going to be gone, most of the things that you are anxious about right now would suddenly cease to matter. uh, My wife was sharing with me this article about this woman who was incredibly wealthy, had all kinds of money, had spent all of her life building up wealth, And she was writing this article, and she found out that she had a very aggressive form of cancer and was only given like a month or two to live. And she said, the funny thing is, is that I spent all my life prioritizing money and these things over here, and now here I sit writing this, and I don't care one lick for any of that. Like it's no longer a priority. And suffering and tragedy and hardship have a way of bringing out the things that we, re- that we think are really important, all the things that make us really anxious, and they just cease to matter. They just cease to actually matter. And then the alternative thing is, because of that clarity of priorities, you suddenly begin to appreciate, perhaps for the first time, the things that actually do matter. You suddenly have clarity about the People that are in the midst of suffering have suddenly clarity. Like this like walks with my kids that matters more than a $10,000 raise suddenly, right? When you, have, when you have this kind of clarity. You begin to teach, take each and every day as a gift because of an awareness of what actually matters. And there are moments, you don't, you, I mean, as, as a pastor or just growing up in life, I should say, um, there are times when you don't even have to go through suffering yourself, but just being in close proximity with it. You have an awareness of, what actually matters, the priorities. I can remember uh, growing up in Chile in South America and uh, in Santiago, big, huge city, um, like 7 million people. So this massive city. And uh, I can remember uh, as a 12 year old kid being shocked. Like we had, we had decided that we were going to be planting a church. My parents were planting a church in the poorest, poorest, poorest part of the entire city. And so we were driving through this really poor part of the city, and it was the rainy season in Santiago. And so the rain is just coming down. And typically in the rainy season, there'll be six, to, six inches to a foot worth of water just flowing in the streets because all of the, the uh, systems are overwhelmed. There's no place for the water to go. And so it's just raining and raining for days on end. And we pull up at this traffic light, and I'm just kind of sitting there in the back of this, like, Beat up hatchback Dotson that, like, we have. And uh, I look out to the left and I see to the left out my window, and there's this big pile of trash, just these big trash bags piled up on this street corner. All these black plastic trash bags. I don't know why they were there. Maybe it was a spot to dump your trash, and then they would come collect it. And so I'm sitting there, and then through kind of the rain and the smudge and all these trash bags, I suddenly realize that I'm about five feet away from these bags of trash. And there's a face staring back at me out of the trash. And it's a boy about my age who was probably homeless and was making a shelter out of these bags of trash. He was just in these bags of trash as a shelter from all of the rain. I've got, I've got other experiences written down. We don't have time for them. But like when you begin to actually experience for yourself or witness in others, the hard parts of life, it suddenly has a way of bringing your priorities to clarity. And suddenly the small little things that he talks about here, whether you're eating, whether you're going to work, the small little mundane things, suddenly you see them as incredible gifts because your priorities have been made straight. We get all bent out of shape out of the junk that doesn't matter because we are entitled. We're brats and we hijack our own joy. And what Ecclesiastes is saying is live as though you have no control over what may come tomorrow because you don't. And if we are to live that way, then our priorities are made straight and we begin to experience what God has for us as a gift. The Second perception is in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. Interesting. In other words, in light of the reality that I'm not in control, but that God is in control, that he stands outside of time, but I'm inside of it, um, A couple of things. One, whatever he does is permanent. Whatever God wants to be permanent is permanent. I might build something in this life or want something to have longevity, but ultimately it's going to be forgotten. It's going to crumble. It's going to come to an end. But God is not that way. He is eternal. He stands outside of time. If he wants something to last forever, it will. And because he has that kind of authority and that kind of control, and I don't, what this text is essentially saying is I need to know my place And I should fear, yes, fear before him. Some of your translations may say awe. But again, it's this idea of this respectful, submissive, humbleness before something that is awesome, worthy of awe. It makes me think of Job. uh, Job in the Old Testament. So Job has all of these terrible things that happen to him. And he doesn't curse God, but he does kind of question God a little bit, doesn't he? And it says that God appears to Job as this giant storm and whirlwind. He's standing before an F5 tornado. Okay, that's what's happening with Job. Job is standing there and God appears before Job at, at his feet as an F5 tornado. And then God tells Job, brace yourself. You don't question me. I will question you. And you will answer me. And then God goes and he shows Job all of these marvelous things. Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? And where were you when I did this? Here is how glorious, how powerful I am, Job. And then Job's response is this. And this is from Job. He says, I know, God, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Awe, fear, respect. Right? Moses goes up on the mountain right for the Ten Commandments. He, he wants to see God, and God's like, no, if you see me, like, you'll, just, you'll, you'll be incinerated, right? You'll just immediately drop dead. So what I'm going to do, Job, is I'm just going to cover up a spot so you can see the back of my hand as I walk by. And so he does that, and then Moses goes down to the people, and he's glowing. He's like radiating this, the glory of God, and they're terrified, they're terrified of Moses because he's just reflecting just this little tiny fraction of the glory of God. And in fact, they tell Moses, we're so terrified of you, you've got to cover yourself up. Here, put this sackcloth like over your head. You've got to cover up. Like we're terrified of you right now. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now I can hear the cynics here saying, wait a second. I thought we're supposed to have a loving relationship with God. Fear? Like, is God asking us to fear him or else? And that's, that completely misses it. That completely misses it. Here's, here's what it is. Nuclear energy, right? It powers a lot of, of what goes on, uh, all of, a lot of our lights and stuff. Nuclear energy. If you're a nuclear scientist, a nuclear engineer, whatever that job is, should you be fear, kind of fearful of the power that you're handling? Or should you be cavalier about it? Which is wisdom and which is foolishness? Is the wise nuclear uh, engineer, is he careful and has a healthy respect for the kind of power that he's dealing with? Or is he cavalier about it? Right? I don't know about you, but I would kind of hope, for all of our sakes, that whoever is operating the nuclear power plants here in America have a healthy fear of nuclear energy because only a fear would not be afraid. A wise person is going to have a kind of fearful respect for that kind of power. Remember when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and they're crossing the water and the storm comes and it's, it's going to overwhelm them. They're all going to die. And they wake Jesus up and they're like, don't you care? you got to help us out here. We're all going to die. And so Jesus stands up and it says he rebukes the storms, rebukes the waves, everything gets quiet. Right? And they're like, whew, okay, that was, that was scary. But then what happens after that? In Mark 4.41, after everything is calm, their lives are saved, Jesus uses his power to save them. It says this in Mark 4.41. Then they, the disciples, were terrified. Terrified. And asked each other, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? What were they terrified of? Jesus. They got a glimpse of his authority. They got a glimpse of his power. What had Jesus done to them? Nothing. In fact, he used his power and authority to save them. He hadn't done anything, but even just a glimpse of the incredible power and authority of God struck fear into their hearts. And here's what wisdom is saying. You're not in control. You can't escape time. But if there is someone who is on the outside of time and who is in absolute control, you should have a healthy respect and fear for them. Total respect, humility, and submission. And that kind of humility and awe is where wisdom begins to traffic. Right? If, you don't, if you don't have a healthy respect for nuclear energy or a healthy respect for an F5 tornado or a healthy fear and respect for a God who has absolute authority and control, then you're a fool, not a wise individual. And here's the other thing. We all fear something. We all traffic, actually, in fear. Now, fear can obviously be a bad motivator. right? And a lot of times fear is used by people to motivate other people in a bad way. But we all ultimately, because we're human beings, have fear of things and people and situations. There's fear in our lives. And the question really isn't, should we or not fear? But the question is really assumed like fear is just a part of us. So what is it that we're going to fear? And the greater you have fear and respect for God and for the right things, right, then the less you're going to fear the things that you shouldn't be. And the more that you fear and esteem and have awe for the things that you shouldn't really be fearing and esteeming, the less you're going to have fear for God. Anybody here ever been on a, a, as a passenger on a cruise ship? I've never been. But anybody else ever been on a cruise ship? They look like a lot of fun. I just want to go on a cruise ship and I hear that you can just eat as much as you want. That sounds like a good time to me. Uh, I want to go on a cruise ship and just eat, eat everything. Um, but... Even if, if you're on a cruise ship, even if you never get to meet the captain of the cruise, are you walking around like afraid of everyone all the time? Afraid of every situation, right? And, and total fear while you're on the, the cruise ship? No. And you know why? Because the captain is in control. You know that the captain is in control. And really, the only person on the cruise ship that you have really to be afraid of is the captain. Like, is he competent? Is he good? Is he going to crash us into an iceberg? Uh, you know, uh, Titanic? Or is he or is he a good captain? And, uh, and so, yeah, God is the captain of our lives. We are not. He's the captain, and if he is the captain, then he's really the only one that we've got to be afraid of. We don't really have to be afraid of anything except for him. But if I think that I'm in control, or that I'm living in a way... That has total disregard for his authority and power, then I'm actually probably giving, off, giving away that fear and awe and respect to something that I shouldn't be. But here's the thing that I know about God the Father and the Son and the Spirit the Trinity is all powerful and worthy of our awe, but the Godhead also uses his authority and power not to crush, but to save. To save. Zephaniah 3.17, we read it this morning, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one, a fearful one, an awesome one, who will save. And that's what God in the flesh does. That's what happens when the Messiah shows up. The disciples thought the Messiah is coming and he's going to use his authority and his power as God to destroy And instead, Jesus uses that power to save. So we stand in awe and in fear, but also in trust, because he doesn't crush us. When I was uh, in middle school, and uh, I was in middle school in Santiago, Chile, I went to a Christian school, and Monday through Thursday, it was casual. You could go to school, and you could wear t-shirts and jeans. But then on Friday, it was like total flip-flop. You had to show up in dress pants, dress shirt, and wear a tie. It was the dress-up day. And so I uh, would typically kind of get dressed all up, and I hate wearing ties and hated wearing ties back then. So I would get all dressed up, and I would grab a tie, and I would throw it in my backpack. And then when I got to school, then I would put the tie on and you know, wear it for the day and then immediately take it off at the end of the day. Well, on one particular day, on a Friday, I get to school, and I go in to get my tie, you know, I was dressed up otherwise, and then realized forgot my tie at home. Uh-oh. So for the first couple of classes, I kind of sit in the back and try to kind of hide the fact, you know, that I'm, teacher got a question, you know, hide the fact that I'm not wearing a tie because I'm going to get in trouble. And, you know, I was getting, by, getting away with it. Nobody had caught me yet uh, that I had forgotten a tie. And then I was out in the hall, in, at my locker, getting books for the next class. And all of a sudden, I hear my name called by the principal of the, of the school his name was Jim Christian. He was this tall, large man. And I just hear him call my name Eric. And I turn around, and he just says, come with me. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm afraid. So I follow him back to his office, you know, back to his office. And we go in, and he shuts the door. And I'm like, oh, man, he shut the door. I'm in big trouble now. I'm getting it. Total Fear, total awe, respect, humility. I'm in big trouble for not wearing a tie. And he just quietly walks over and he opens up his closet door in his office and he's got a tie rack in there. And he grabs a, a tie off. And he, he comes over and he puts it over my neck and he ties it. And then he says, okay, you can go back to class now. You're, have a good day and you can keep the tie. And even though that's kind of a silly Petty example, that's how Jesus uses his authority and power for us. See, Jim uh, could have used his power and authority to say, you were a rule breaker. You're a rule breaker. And now I'm, I'm gonna, the law is coming down on you, and you're going to be crushed with it because you're going to get what you deserve. But instead, he used his power and authority to rescue and to save. And that is what Jesus does for us. And so we need to have, as Christians, a fear and a respect for the Lord, but also a trust because He is good. So the calling today is to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves just this. Am I, am I trafficking in wisdom? Am I living with a denial of my humanity or an acceptance of it? of my limitations? Am I living like I'm in control or do I have an awareness that ultimately everything is outside of my control? Am I living in an entitled way of life where I feel like I deserve the things that I'm getting? Or do I see that each and every moment, the simple little things, the small moments are actually a gift? Am I living with my priorities straight or am I becoming really anxious just about stuff that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things? Are we living with a kind of humble and submissive awe, a fear of the Lord? Or are we living in a way that, that uh, undermines and rejects His authority and power and transcendence? These are the questions that we need to take home with us today and wrestle with, the questions that you need to, to wrestle with in your groups this week. You know we 're getting ready to uh, take communion here, and then the band will come forward and lead us in worship and this is this is the 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 gospel uh, as we take communion. this shows us that that God who had the authority and the power to crush us instead let himself be crushed for us and so we celebrate that each and every week uh, so in in this uh, little um, Cup, you'll have on the top portion, if mine will open, a little piece of bread. And this represents Christ's body broken for us. Rather than breaking us, he let himself be broken. Christ's body broken for us. And then we also have in here the juice, which represents Christ's blood shed for us. So we take this today in remembrance of him. Uh, So whenever you're ready, you can take this uh, and then the band is going to come forward and, um, and we'll sing one last worship song. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And yet, even as we come boldly, uh, we want to have fear and respect and humility towards you, trust towards you. We can trust your goodness in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be people who traffic in wisdom, that we get our priorities straight. God, I confess that I worry and get stressed out about things that ultimately don't matter. Often I am a brat. I'm like the little kid in the supermarket that whines and cries about the things that that I don't get, that I feel like I deserve. And I feel like you are holding out on me. I've got this eternity set in my heart but I am blinded to your ways. Father, I pray that I would be humble, that I would know my place, and that I would have the eyes to see the gifts that you give to me. Father, we're so blessed. We're so blessed. When I, see, when I think of the things and consider the things that I have seen in my life, God, the, the tragedy that I've seen, I think to myself,